Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Music and Spinner.com, where you can get free MP3s, exclusive interviews, and more. Video bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 233 for January 28, 2010. Let's design a computer. Security Now is brought to you by GoToMeeting. Picture yourself on a phone call, sharing and explaining something visual with GoToMeeting. For your free 30-day trial, visit GoToMeeting.com slash security now. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers everything you need to know about protecting yourself online. And here to uh, get protected... Our guru of security, Mr. Steve Gibson. He's the man in charge at the Gibson Research Corporation, GRC.com. The folks who created Spinrite, the world's best hard drive maintenance and recovery utility. But also, Steve, in you know the process of running his own server, discovered the first spyware, uh, coined the name spyware, and, and, uh, and in fact um, uh, wrote the first anti-spyware tool. He still writes a lot of free, useful security products for us all. Hello, Steve. Great to see you. Hey, Leo, great to be with you again, um, as always, every week. We got a fun one today. Well, we have a fun series, actually. Um, one of the things that I think this podcast excels at, if I may, you know, quote the feedback that we get from our, our, our own inbound mail from our listeners, is explaining stuff in a clear way that lets people come away from it thinking, um, wow, I understood that. Um, you know, I mean, we've tackled crypto in great depth, you know, ciphers and um, all aspects of security. And there's a ton of technology that we're all carrying around with us in our laptop or sitting on our desktop, you know, the modern computer. And, and we got so much feedback from the old time computing oh, yeah. podcast that we did um, that I thought, you know, we really do a good job of demystifying stuff. Let's tackle the big one, how a computer works. Wow. And, <laughs> that is yeah, the big one, isn't it? The big one. I mean, it's something, I mean, we're certainly going to keep everyone up to speed as we always do with security news. So we'll always have, you know, what's happening in the security news and we'll interrupt uh, this uh, series, if necessary, for anything big, but there's it on modern machines. We have this whole issue of you know we people have heard the terms risk and CISC, reduced instruction set and complex instruction set. Um, there was the attempt of the Power PC that sort of failed to Intel. We've we've we know we now have multiple cores. We've got super scalar execution and L2 and L1 caching and all of these things have been done over time to solve problems and as i as i sort of sat down to map out how i wanted to explain why these things were done i kept moving back further and further into well okay to understand that we need to understand this and to really understand this we need to understand that and i worked myself all the way back to transistors first principles yeah, yeah. and 
And so, so what I want to do is I want to start with where this all began um, back at the beginning and, and take our listeners on a journey from literally where computing was 50 years ago wow. in 1960. One of the things that I really understood really clearly when I was reading the history of all this over the last year, sort of following my, my interest in, in, the, in the PDP-8s, um, was I developed a much greater sense for how expensive the simplest things were. And then I realized in order to explain that, I needed to explain what it was that they were trying to do and yeah, what tools yeah. they had at the time. And so what I want to do is I want to start at the beginning and create a foundation and then rather rapidly, because we don't want to take, you know, <laughs> we don't want to take a decade to explain five decades, um, but sort of like then zoom forward over the next several podcasts looking at how things changed, what happened, what problems were encountered, and what solutions were created to solve them. And we'll end up, I think, some number of weeks from now, I'm not sure how many, but but with our listeners understanding where this all came from to a depth they well, that will surprise everyone, I think. I think that's a fabulous idea. I think that that's really the only way to really understand what's going on. We've gotten to a level of complexity now here 30 years into the computer revolution oh. where people don't really know. It's just under the hood. It's just a black box. And it would be nice, I think. You know, it's it's. remember we talked a while ago. I thought um, if I wanted to teach a programming la uh, language class uh, to my kids' high school, I was looking at books and stuff, and I found a really good book for that. And then I thought, well, what if I wanted to teach? And I still haven't done this, but... I did teach a class in podcasting, though. Uh, and then I thought, what if I wanted to teach a, a computer science class? And I had the same thought that you did, which is start from first principles. And somebody sent me a, a recommendation for a book called The Elements of Computing Systems. It was published by um, MIT Press in 2005 by Noam Nissan and Shimon Shakan. Exactly the same idea, building a modern computer from first principles. And it's a really neat book you can even buy the kit that goes with it so that as you're teaching this class and you start with and gates and logic and stuff you know the stuff you would need if you were going to have a multi-purpose computer they can actually start building this thing and at the end they get a very simple but functional computer that they understand and i think this is a great idea steve i love this idea well that's what we're going to do it's funny because the the this i mean exactly what you were talking about sort of it it gelled for me because um a number of people have have written and you know looking at my little PDP eight kit that I put together because I have those those videos on GRC now and they said yeah but you know what can I do with it right and what I realized was when I when I looked at answering that question and I have a new page on the site that is you know what you can do with one of these I realized that there's this magical I mean and and it almost is magical I mean even for someone such as myself who, you know, programs in machine language, you know, instruction by instruction, there's this really magical sort of mystical amplification that occurs by, by which I mean that such little simple steps can be strung together and before you know it, you, you are 
having a basic compiler or a focal interpreter or, uh, I mean, a functional operating system. It's just, there's, I think that's where this all comes from, is it's surprising what amplification factor there is in in this notion of lots of little steps performed very quickly. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, I mean... And it, and we all, everyone who's listening to this knows that's sort of the mystique of the computer is oh well they're really dumb they don't really do anything but they but they but they don't, don't do, do anything, anything very fast, really fast. <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's a I say that sometimes it's a box of rocks but it's just a really fast box of rocks <laughs> exactly <laughs> if you do and really it only does multiplication doesn't even do that it does addition uh, subtraction comparisons and branching right well I don't want to steal your thunder. Oh, there's no danger of that. I think we're gonna we're gonna take our listeners on a really fun I journey. I, I think this is. Re- I can't wait. I'm very excited. Before we do, though, I imagine there are a few security. In fact, I know uh, there are because I saw some security news this week that kind of yeah, shocked me. Yeah. Um, the most disturbing bit of news is that it came out uh, through Microsoft's admission that they knew about this flaw in Internet Explorer which had the out-of-cycle emergency fix last week that we talked about, the same one that was responsible for um, allowing bad guys into Google, Adobe, Rackspace, and many other companies. They knew about it last August. Oh. Oh. (laughs) Now, okay, okay, and they're in their defense. Maybe it took them since August to fix it. Like to figure out how to fix it safely. Yes? No. Uh, well, <laughs> they apparently had no plan to fix they it. They sat on it. I mean, yes. Uh, when it became a PR problem, yeah. when Germany and France told people not to use Internet Explorer anymore until this was fixed, they had it fixed in a number of days. Literally in a number of days. And pushed an out of an out of cycle patch by the way i heard you and paul talking about out of cycle versus out of out band. band they say out of band for some reason you are so correct that out of band means by i mean by definition a different channel of communication right you know and this is not a different channel this was an out of cycle but you know right it's strange that microsoft is out of band it's like well okay well some somebody i think is trying to use a fancy term and doesn't quite <laughs> yeah. have their finger on it <laughs> So out of cycle makes sense. Then. For for most of the world, this was an, a zero-day flaw. But it certainly was not a zero-day flaw for Microsoft, who had this sitting in Internet Explorer for six months. And it wasn't until they... I mean, in fact, I have to say, there's been a great deal of outrage in the security community that, that you know, basically, I, I've read security um, gurus saying... That this is a real breach of trust, yeah, and you know, to their customers, that that this kind of problem was allowed to sit there, and as long as Microsoft didn't know that it was go- being being taken advantage of, then they were in no hurry to fix it. So mm-hmm. that's just really disturbing. Um, a new problem has surfaced, which is really sort of interesting. This one's been around for seventeen years. <laughs> <laughs> Not known about seventeen years since NT three point one. Jeez, the very first version of NT um, had something called the NT VDM. 
the anti-virtual DOS machine. Hmm. This was the environment which Microsoft created to allow 16-bit applications, you know, basically the, the so-called DOS box to function. It turns out that in order to, to do this, to pull this off, to allow a 16-bit DOS program to operate in a protected mode environment, what you need to do is you, you create this, this virtualization. You, you create a, a container which intercepts the, the software's actions like calling the so-called BIOS that, that it really, that no application software has access to when it's running in a protected environment or even writing to the hardware. The way, the way DOS applications would put data on the screen is that the, 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 the screens were, were what's called memory mapped where a chunk of memory was the screen data and you would write into memory and a character would appear on the screen. And so there was a, a, a dot matrix generator that converted the byte in memory into the physical dot pattern of the character. But the way the software operated was it just literally, literally wrote into memory. Well, you can't, that's another thing you can't just wantonly do no. in a protected operating system Very like dangerous. NT. Yeah. So there's a system of, there's a system of, of sort of wrapper around this program, which is running a 16 bit program, which is the so-called DOS box. Um, Microsoft was once again told of a problem that existed in this last summer. Um, it was found by some Google researchers who told Microsoft. And they gave Microsoft time to fix it. Microsoft didn't. And so the researchers recently went public with this problem. It's not a huge problem. In fact, probably only corporate IT needs to worry about this to a great degree because it's a the, the a consequence of this flaw which is in in all versions of windows this affects every version of windows from the, from the very beginning 3.1 all the way up through windows 7 um, it allows a local privilege escalation essentially allowing you allowing a user who has no admin privileges on the system to acquire them instantly. Um, proof of concept code exists. Security researchers have tried it, and they've like instantly had full kernel system level privileges. No, no restrictions at all. Now, um, in our show notes is a link to... Microsoft Security Advisory, and also a one-click, one of the Microsoft's little one-click fix-it buttons. So I don't, I don't know how home users, you know, like those, of, those listeners of ours who are just using a computer by themselves, I don't think this is a problem for them. Microsoft will surely fix it with probably with February's standard second Tuesday of the month update. I would be surprised if they didn't. 
um, because it looks like it's not going to be a big deal to fix. But and, you know, certainly they're going to you know, they've acknowledged it. They're researching it. They understand now that maybe they should have gotten off the stick and, and fixed this sooner because it's, it's not clear that something malicious that arrives in email might not be able to leverage this. So maybe, and you know, like individual users should be concerned. The problem is that it, the only fix for it is to completely disable the NTVDM, this NT virtual DOS machine. It, that can be disabled with a registry key uh, using uh, system policies. When you do that, what, what you're doing is blocking the operation of 16-bit applications. Now, frankly, I can't function without 16-bit apps. Even today, you know, the editor I'm using, Brief, runs in a DOS box. I added all my source code in Brief. So, uh, and it's funny, I was talking to Mark Thompson recently, our, our friend at Analog X. Mark has moved to Windows 7 and is really been inconvenienced by the fact that he didn't appreciate how many of the utilities he uses day in and day out are 16-bit apps. So he's been converting, he's been like literally converting some old trusted apps that other people wrote that he's just been using forever. He's rewriting them in 32 bits so that so that he's able to be fully 32 and 64 bit only because he's still using 16 bits. So there's a possibility that people might be using 16 bit apps even today without their knowledge. I know I am. So I'm not going to worry about this because, you know, I'm I'm making sure that I'm secure and you'd have to have something evil running in your machine in order to somehow exploit this anyway. On the other hand, I wouldn't be surprised if clever people don't figure out some way for, you know, to to create a blended threat where something takes advantage of this in order to get more privileges than it might already have. Because, for example, one of the ways our most recent systems are more secure is they're taking advantage, for example, of not always running as with admin privileges, running with reduced privileges. So it might be possible if this, you know, the NTVDM were enabled to come up with a way of running some 16-bit code that would invoke the NTVDM, escalate privileges, and then do something behind your back. So it's not clear that it's not a problem for for individuals, but you can imagine that corporate IT that depends upon having their systems locked down, this is a big, you know, master key to any locked down system um, as that has its virtual DOS machine enabled. So it may just be that they'll they'll use policies in order to disable this corporate wide, and you know, and deal with any specific needs um, that for, like for sixteen bit code that arise on the fly. Hmm. So we've got links to those things for our listeners. Yep. Um, and the one click fix it is probably the easiest thing to do. Microsoft's security advisor advisory talks about. It's it's pretty complicated, which is why I like the one click fix it for people who just want to you know disable this and not worry about it in the meantime. Those are just registry fixes, and that's just disables in the registry, I would guess. Yeah, although as I was looking at it, it was like okay for XP you do this, uh-huh. for Windows Seven right. you do this. It's right. like oh, okay, let's just that, press a, let's exactly. just press a button, yeah, <laughs> and let it worry about it. Um, Adobe Shockwave has at 
released um, an update. And I want to remind people again, this is not Flash. This is not the Flash player, but the but the separate Shockwave player. Um, anything up through, this is for both Windows and Mac, up through version 11.5.2.602 are vulnerable. And it's necessary to get the newer version. And I realize my notes are wrong here. It's not the same version. Oh, no. Uh, 11.5.6.606 is what you can now dot download. One of the problems is it does not have a simple update uh, solution. Following Adobe's instructions, it's necessary to uninstall the old Shockwave player, reboot your system in order to get all the old code out of being still in RAM, then download and install the new version. My feeling is that if people don't know they're using Shockwave, then they're probably not using Shockwave. This is different than the browser-embedded Flash player, which pretty much everybody is using. So I did want to make a note of that, that that's for those people who are using Shockwave player separately, there is a new version and it's necessary to update because there are some, you know, basically the arbitrary code injection exploits that we're always seeing once again in an Adobe product. And then just a brief note, we talked last week about the SSL, uh, TLS, you know, secure socket layer renegotiation problem, which the IETF has has officially come up with a sort of, a, unfortunately, a kludgy workaround for. Um, I wanted to note that in Apple's security update, the first update of the year, which was last week, um, on which they released on the 20th, they disabled SSL TLS renegotiation to prevent any man-in-the-middle attacks until the final fix is ready. So I thought that was sort of nice. It's 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 something you can live without given that it's you're at risk of exploitation then okay why not just disable that in the interim and so i imagine that next month or a month from now whenever the this update has been vetted sufficiently and we're like we're ready to deploy then i imagine we'll see that apple is is updating their um the ssl tls renegotiation in order to, um, you know, in order to to secure it so in a solid fashion. What happens if it's disabled? I mean, why don't we need it? Um, it's actually not used that often. The idea is that it's it's always been an option, and in theory, if you had an SSL connection that was really persistent, that is, you know, at, at the beginning of an SSL connection. You negotiate a an agreed upon symmetric key. the The key length today is long enough that you can safely use the key for a huge number of of packets worth of traffic, but not forever. And and the original designers understood that from like every you know, month or so. I mean, it's, we're talking about connections that long, that persistent. That every, you know, that over a long period of time, it might be a good idea to be able to retire 
a symmetric key and renegotiate another one because the the over the the more data that you expose, the more opportunity there is to see patterns in the in in the encrypted information. So so the whole point of this renegotiation is to allow the an existing connection to to stay up, but for either side to request a re a renegotiation of the security context. And so the point is with normal SSL connections having a life of a few minutes, <laughs> you're just never seeing this yeah. happen. And, and so I, and I suppose there's just some nice way that it'll fail over without collapsing. Uh, good question. Uh, I don't know what it does. Probably one side says, I want to renegotiate, and the other side sorry. says, I'm sorry. I don't do that anymore. <laughs> disabled. And the other guy probably says, okay, fine. We'll keep or using maybe the key. they drop the, you could also just drop start the a new one. Yeah. And just bring it back up again. Yeah. Exactly. So rather than renegotiating the existing one, you just drop it and reconnect. And in which case, you've got a first negotiation rather than a renegotiation. Of course. Simple. Simple solution. And I did want to just mention, I had a little note here in my errata to remind everybody about my favorite mouse. I only mention it again because I've turned some other friends on to the Logitech Anywhere MX mouse. I bought three after you talked about it. And? I love it. Oh, isn't it and just I'm, And I'm a lefty. Remember we talked a little bit about, well, it's not completely oh. uh, left-right neutral, but no, it's you, close you, enough. You're a left-handed mouser. Oh, Yeah. Interesting, because I'm a, a, as much a lefty as you are, but yeah. I'm mou- I've always moused with my right hand. Here's huh. a weird one. On a uh, trackpad on a laptop, I use my right hand. I don't know why. Huh. I get yeah. kind of ambidextrous there. But, yeah, yeah. no, it's, it's slightly uh, right, uh, righty-focused, but only very slightly. And it was a really nice mouse. I do love it. Well, my, my, my tech support guy, Greg, made a specific point of saying, hey, you know, you, you told me about that mouse? I said, yeah. He said, I love it. And I said, okay, I just got to remind everybody. I mean, literally, I'm batting a thousand at this point. Every single person I've told about it has said, hey, you know, that's this, like the best mouse I've ever used. It's a sweet mouse. It has the, the, the uh, track, uh, what is that, the scroll wheel with the clutch, which I really like. I love to yeah. spin that scroll wheel. Yep, it, it's um, got like a zero friction scroll wheel, yep. and so like zooming up and down through pages is easy. Right. The 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 Logitech software that they have available for for the Mac and for the PC allows you to reassign the various buttons. What what I've done is I use the the tilt of the wheel as my browser forward and backward, and then I use the the side buttons as top of page bottom of page because oh, i have to do that. that that's good it's really nice because you know i'll often be way down a page and i just want to jump to the top so i just so so the 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 upper side arrow takes me to the top and also you know the bottom of the page is somewhere i want sometimes where i want to be and so that that jumps to either extreme and then tilting the wheel left and right is you know to the left takes me is like hitting the browser's back button and to the right is like the four button and so I just, you know, when I'm, if, if I'm using a mouse other than that, because I've got some legacy mice around here, it's like, oh, I just got to, you know, get another mouse and, and swap it in because, you know, it's just perfect. And so, the reason they call it an anywhere mouse is because it uses a different kind of laser that uh, works on glass and, uh, and yeah, it actually, it's, it, it's a higher incidence of reflection laser. The, the laser points down more rather than at as, at as much of an angle. 
And that allows it to pick up texture, as you said, even from glass. I mean, you need no surface whatsoever. It'll, it'll mouse over like a window and, and work just fine. So really does work anywhere. <clears throat> we are uh, going to get to our how to design a computer, our topic of the day. I love this so much. Before we do, though, I think you have a spin right note, and I have a note from our fine sponsors. Well, in my effort to, uh, which actually seems to not be that much effort, to always find something different <laughs> for, that a spin right user has managed to pull off, I've got um, Mihai G is uh, uh, the name that I have because I can't even begin to pronounce the last name, G-H-E-O-R-G-H-E. So anyway, Mihai G, and he helped me uh, phonetically uh, with his first name, says Spinrite saves Xbox. And he said, Steve, a longtime listener of Security Now and other Twitch shows, my dad purchased Spinrite over three years ago due to a failing drive, which Spinrite repaired. Then last night at a New Year's party, I was playing my Xbox and went to get a drink. I forgot that there were at least 10 kids between the ages of 8 and 11 in that room. When I came back, the Xbox was upside down. I asked what happened. They told me they accidentally knocked it over. I panicked. I saw that the disc was scratched beyond any repair. I guess he must mean the, the CD or DVD that was, that was, you know, the removable disc. He said, but fortunately, the Xbox itself still seemed to work. I powered it off and turned it back on. It took 15 minutes to boot up rather than five seconds it usually takes. So I tried it again. I went, so, I, so I tried it again. I went to get a drink again. And the kids came and told me the Xbox fell over again. And then he says, face palm. (laughs) (laughs) Oh! He says, now the Xbox would hardly even boot up and would sometimes give me an E86 hard drive error. That's funny they used 86 because that's, of course, the old restaurant term for like when you 86 something. you're, You're getting rid of it. Anyway, E86 hard drive error. So I turned it off and put it away and said, Happy New Year. This morning, and I noticed he he wrote on January 2nd, Saturday, January 2nd. He said, this morning, so what, two days later, Mm -hmm. I decided to see if I could salvage the hard drive. I then remembered I had Spinrite. I voided the Xbox warranty and took the laptop drive out of the case and hooked it up to my desktop via a SATA cable. I ran Spinrite on level two and level four. And it would not even read data for the first 10% of the drive. But when I set Spinrite to start after 10%, it went blazingly fast through the rest of the drive. I decided to try the drive back in the Xbox again, and it worked. The Xbox booted up in less than five seconds. I unfortunately lost all my DLC, whatever that is, but I have since re-downloaded all of it. Thank you again, Steve, for a great product. It does fix everything. It's probably downloadable content, I would guess. Ah, okay. Um, And probably what was happening was, even though he says, you know, Spinrite got stuck, well, that's what Spinrite looks like when it's in the middle of doing data recovery. 
So it was probably busily fixing things, and he didn't, like, let it go long enough, but he let it go long enough that it fixed enough to get the Xbox. That's a a really good point. Yeah. So let it go. When it's struggling, that's when it's getting the data that you want. Yes. That's when it's kind of recovering the data that's on a damaged sector. Yeah, and there's not much feedback it can give you because it's just it's working right. with the drive going, eh, and eh, and the, eh, exactly eh, and the eh, drive's relocating sectors and it's recovering right. things and then afterwards it says okay look you know we got some done let's let's move on so uh, I would guess that it was that that early phase where it didn't seem to be doing anything that actually that was you know that was it working that's kind of the secret sauce of uh, spin right is it doesn't give up that's exactly right the operating system after whatever twenty tries says well I can't read it. And that's why Spinrite can take sometimes. What what was the longest one? Months. <laughs> oh, I, I get email from people who just have machines sitting on the side. Just and now it's just sort of like a a, a matter of honor. They just want to see what it'll do. But go, okay. all it has to do is get it one and maybe a million times. But once be able to see that data and it passes the CRC and then it says, "Okay, I got it," and move it and then mark that sector bad and you've yep. you've recovered that data. Exactly. And Spinrite does a whole bunch of extra stuff too. You know, for example. If it finally does give up, it's there's a way for it to say, well, give me what you've got. And so Spinrite can even do a partial sector read, and nothing has ever done that before. Yeah. Sometimes that's enough. Right, because often the sector has slack space or, you know, it's it's just a few bytes in there. Or it's a text file or it's, right. I mean, back in the day, there, there, I, I, I remember DBase files, DBase databases would absolutely not mount if any part of it right. was bad right. so like just one record out of a huge database could be could be unreadable and the whole thing was lost so spinrite would, would would come along and say okay look here's a problem in this record but guess what you got the rest of your database back right. people were like oh <laughs> hallelujah quite like that <laughs> yeah, yeah. <really. laughs> hey we're gonna take a break come back we're gonna design a computer with you from first principles i think this is such a great idea this is a a, a spin right that you might want to save for kids for students uh anybody who wants to understand you know i was i was reading the uh jerry parnell um larry niven uh book uh i think it was uh i don't think it was moton god's eye i think it was uh lucifer's hammer and one of the scientists in there observes we don't understand how anything works in our modern life. And if, you know, this comet hits and we lose the few people who do and all Whoa. the information, we can't rebuild it because, uh, you know, and think about how much of the technology you use. Do you not have any clue how it works? No idea. Even the internal combustion engine, we probably would, could only get the basics back from the stuff that we understand, let alone computers. So this is good. This is something we need to know. How does this stuff work? Where there's did it come a, from? There, there, there's a, a series of sci-fi that I've been reading called, called the Lost Fleet series mm-hmm. um, that I've that I've that I've been reading on my on my Kindle, and the the premise is really interesting. Um, a guy awakens from having been in hibernation for a hundred years, and it turns out that. He he went into hibernation because he jumped into an escape pod as his as his ship was being destroyed um, at the beginning of a war between two cultures that had been at war now during this entire intervening hundred years and be, and unfortunately what happened was that the casualty rate was so high that. That fighting, the, the art of fighting 
coordinated fleets of starships had been lost. And so he comes back and is fully trained in essentially this, like what it takes to fight fleets of starships at, at substantial fractions of the speed of light, where you have to take into account the the speed of light delay oh, wow. you you've got to realize that that your own information is delayed and so he's able to he like takes command of what what remains of the alliance fleet and 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 has to instill discipline that they've lost a whole different way of fighting but then leads them on a series of successful um uh successful engagements because he's able to you know he has the training that that none of the rest of them have, and it's just you know it's really a fascinating series. I'm enjoying. It. I'm in the fourth book now and having a ball with it. Yeah, I uh, I, I have to say um, the the we we are we live on the steady march of technology. I, I don't want to give anything away because Moat and God's Eye talks about this also. I guess it's something that Larry and Jerry think about a lot. I guess I can't, you know, I can't tell you this without giving away a very crucial turn. <laughs> I, lo- in this I book. love the book. The book yeah. is so. Good. You have to just read the book, and then, but yeah. but he does talk about this notion of of uh, we live on this, you know, pyramid of technology, but but we we couldn't rebuild it overnight. <laughs> we just, you know, and uh, and and we'd have to start from scratch each time. Yeah, that's all I can say. Let's talk, without giving away a very critical part of that book. What a fun book that is, too. Uh, let me talk a little bit about Go to Meeting, then we're going to get to the first principles. You have to listen so that if civilization ends, you can build the computer again. And then the computer can build everything else. Actually, that's really all you need to do, right? Is build a self replicating robot and let them go at it. They were trying that in the 70s, and that didn't really <laughs> didn't work, work so very well. well. Yeah. The, the, early, the early artificial intelligence right. move where right. everyone thought, oh, this is easy. We'll just, you know, neural networks. We'll put a bunch of these together, and yeah. it's going to get smart. Mm-mm. And it actually showed them how smart we were. We're so smart and yet so dumb. Yeah. But that's a talk for another day. <laughs> or another podcast. <laughs> another podcast. You know, it happens all the time that you have a phone call that you're on, you know, a conference call. This happens in business, but it actually could happen anytime, but it happens all the time in business where you are, because we always do these conference calls. And then it always comes to the point where, oh, if I could show you this and you start maybe describing it or you start reading the numbers off a spreadsheet or, you know, you've got your PowerPoint and say, imagine if you will slide one. (laughs) It's so frustrating when they can't see it. But not just for you, but for them, imagine. I mean, they're, they're frustrated, too. It makes a call last longer. really kind of takes all the wind out of the sails. A picture is worth a thousand words, and now with GoToMeeting, people can see what you're talking about. You could take these conference calls and turn them into effective visual presentations. You can install it right now for free and, and get an idea of this. It'll just take you a minute. Just go to gotomeeting.com slash security now. And it, the installation is simple. And by the way, it does not junk up your system. It's a little... Java, not JavaScript, but Java stub that doesn't invade your system. It's one simple single file, which I really like. I mean, they, it's very clean um, and installs in, in literally about 30 seconds. Now you're equipped. Uh, you can start a meeting manually by talking to somebody and going to go to meeting.com together, or you can send them an invitation. It has an Outlook, a uh, little Outlook thing that will, you click a button and it starts, it, it says, okay, we're going to have a meeting. You can send out an invitation. When they get to go to meeting.com, you're, show, you're talking, you're talking, you're talking. Oh, let me show you this PowerPoint. Go to go to meeting.com. They click the button, join a meeting. 
They put in the meeting number, and suddenly that's it. That's all they have to do. They're seeing your computer, and they see the PowerPoint in real time, by the way. The mouse moves, everything just like they're – it's like you're kind of inside their computer. It's very cool. Uh, and by the way, you can trade control. So that, so if you're working on the document or you're, or you're training, even if they don't have the uh, training application, you do. They can use it just like it's – you know, they're there. Uh, and you can say to the client or the colleague, um, okay, now show me on your computer, and they can show, they can reverse it. It's very powerful, very easy to use, uh, very effective. It's, it's one of those products that's highly polished. You know, it just works. It works so well that you might not even realize what all the wonderful things going on under the hood, but you've got to try it to really get it, and I want you to try it free for the next 30 days. Go to meeting.com. Slash security now for sales presentations, product demos, training sessions, collaboration. Go to meeting.com. It's the best. Really is. I mean, everybody agrees. It's won all the awards, and I want you to try it. If you're in business, if you have meetings, just get this thing, and then when the time comes, you'll be ready. Go to meeting.com slash security now. We really appreciate their support, by the way. Um, they're back this year. They're just a very consistent sponsor, so you support us by supporting them. All right, Steve, let us talk about computers. What, how, how far back do we have to go to understand this? Well, um, when you say first principles, are you talking silicone? Silicon? What are we talking about? Before that, actually, um, if, we, if we wind ourselves back in a time, we get, we get into our way back machine and, and want to understand the, the, the first successful computers and i'm talking about you know frankly you know the the pdp uh deck machines the, the, you know there was honeywell and burroughs digital equipment corporation um ibm the these these early machines were were pre integrated circuit so so there wasn't this notion of multiple components that could be mass produced. That was a an amazing breakthrough, which is very easy to take for granted. I mean, Lord knows we, we're you know we, everybody. Well, everybody listening to this has integrated circuits surrounding them, and and I would say throughout the day you're we're surrounded by integrated circuits doing different things. But before that, before it was possible to to integrate different types of components onto a single piece of silicon which which allowed then mass production all of these components were separate and it was the it was the the separateness of them and the need to interconnect them which which put a tre- a tremendous limiting factor on the on on the feasible complexity of these early machines. So, what I want to do is really start at the beginning with if you have resistors and transistors, how do you create logic from that? How you know we know the computers use ones and zeros. Um, there were computers, analog computers, which people tinkered with which for a while um could they had they had the 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 benefit of being able to with a lower degree of accuracy do things 
in the analog world where currents and voltages conveyed meaning, they were able to do things far more easily than digital computers of the era uh, at, at, you know, within the same time frame, except that what ended up happening was we, we needed more accuracy. Things like, like, you know, temperature could affect the accuracy of an analog computer. And so it, it turned out that just treating everything as, as collections of binary information, ones and zeros, even though you needed a lot of them in order to, to get the same resolution that you could get sort of for free with a voltage on a wire, you could represent that voltage with a sufficiently large number of ones and zeros and, and get the resolution you needed and also get absolute accuracy that would not drift over time. You didn't have to worry about calibration and temperature and, you know, super closely controlled power supply voltages. There was just all this forgiveness by taking the binary approach. So, you know, now analog computers are sort of long gone and, and you know, <laughs> um, they've been completely supplanted by, by digital technology. So one of the... One of the simplest, most basic components of, of digital logic is, is called an inverter. And I want to explain, um, you know, here's where we wish we had go to meeting. But, you know, we, we're, we're in a podcast, an audio um, uh, format. So I'm going to need people to sort <laughs> Visualize of... Visualize here. <laughs> yeah, if you're driving... You're proving my point. <laughs> exactly. If, if you're driving while you're listening to this, do not close your eyes. Um, but uh, anybody else, you know, I'm, I'm going to draw a picture for you. We have to do a little bit of schematic work with, with, with electricity and, elect, and early electronics to explain the principles. But when I'm done, um, I think everyone's going to get a kick out of what they understand. Um, I'm going to simplify things a little bit here and there, but fundamentally, this is the way all of this stuff began to work. If we um, uh, imagine in this in this uh, visual slate that there's a, a wire running along the top, which carries a voltage, and another wire running along the bottom, which is the the ground, so that and this is the way most of these logic diagram schematics are drawn is you'll have a you'll have sort of a bus running across the top that has a voltage which is just a a pressure essentially created by a power supply and anchored at the bottom is is another wire sort of a bus running horizontally that is the ground you then you 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 interconnect things in between this this positive power supply potential at the top and the ground at the bottom. If we, if we had two resistors, um, a resistor is a component with two wires coming out of each end, which, as the name sounds, resists the flow of, of current through it. Well, essentially, what it does is you run current through it and it gets hot. It dissipates current in the form of heat um, so imagine in this circuit diagram that we have two resistors, um, 
connected the first one at the top coming down to the second one, which then connects to the ground at the bottom. So that, so that we have a circuit formed for just with two resistors in series. And for the sake of simplicity, we'll, we'll assume that they have the same amount of resistance. Well, that's, this forms something called a voltage divider because essentially when we make this circuit with just two resistors in series, voltage will flow um, through this circuit. And the, the direction of voltage flow is, is sort of controversial. I can't remember now. I was trying to remember which direction I learned in, in high school. What in, in, you know, some people think of voltage flowing from the negative to the positive. Some people think of it from the positive to the negative. It really doesn't matter. Technically, one direction is, is current flow. The other is the flow of the electrons, which sort of goes in the, you know, being negative goes in the other direction. So, um, so either way, all you have to have is, is a consistent system since it's really a sort of an arbitrary designation which way the current is flowing. So we have this, what's called a voltage divider. So at the, at the very top is our power supply voltage. What happens is the resistors share this voltage drop, as it's called, between the, the positive power supply voltage and ground. So that the junction where they're connected in the middle will be at half of that power supply voltage because they evenly divide it. And so that's sort of the first thing to see is you have two resistors connected together. They form what's called a voltage divider and the voltage in the middle or the voltage at their junction where they're connected is half of the total voltage. So now we take out the bottom resistor and we replace it with a switch, just a standard mechanical switch. It's got two wires and depending upon whether the switch is open or closed, open means they're not connected, closed mean, means they are. Um, if, the, if we close the switch, then... The switch is essentially a short circuit. So now that resistor that's still on the upper half of this little circuit, its lower lead is connected through the closed switch to ground. So its lower lead is now at zero voltage at ground when this switch is closed. If we open the switch then we've disconnected the, the circuit and the lower lead is now ha- it now has the same voltage as the power supply because there's no current flowing through this resistor. There's no voltage drop across the resistor. So now we go to the next step and we replace the switch with a transistor. A transistor is a three-lead device, a three-terminal electronic device. We've all heard of transistors, of course. The way it works is um, there's, it, it's like a, it works like an electronic switch. 
um, we put this transistor in the circuit. And so the transistor has an input on what's called the base lead of the transistor, such that when we, we put a positive voltage on that base lead, on the input of the transistor, this, the switch closes. That is, the, the transistor sort of works like, a, a, like, the, like the switch that we just took out, but it's controlled with this, the voltage on its base. Actually, voltage and current get complicated here, I, and I want to keep this sort of simple so we can stay to what's important. Um, but the idea is that if we, if we put a positive voltage on the base of the transistor, that is the input of the transistor, some current will flow through the base, which turns the transistor on. But remember that when the transistor's on, it pulls the, the lower end of that resistor that's coming down from, from the supply voltage, it pulls it down to ground, that is down to zero. So what we have is an inverter because when we put a positive voltage on the input of the transistor, it turns on, which pulls the, the, that junction between the resistor and the transistor down to zero. So a one goes in and a zero comes out. And if we, if we move the voltage on the base of this transistor, the input of the transistor down to ground, then the transistor turns off. And with the transistor off, then that junction between the resistor and the transistor goes up to the power supply voltage. In other words, a one. So what we have is this with just two components, this resistor that goes up to the positive power supply with a transistor hooked to it going down to ground. We have an input into the transistor and the output is that junction between the resistor and the transistor and that creates an inverter. So we have with these two components one of the probably the most basic logic system that you can have. So so that's an inverter. Um it doesn't I mean it, it's certainly useful by itself, but we can do something make a, a one additional um, change to it to begin to create some logic gates. And that is we take another transistor and hook it to the same place. That is, we put these two transistors in parallel with each other. Another transistor hooked to the same place so that either of them are able to, to be turned on and pull this output down to ground. That is, hook the, the bottom of the resistor down to ground. So now, look what we have. If we, if we turn either transistor on by putting a one binary one into either of the inputs, then the transistor will, that transistor will turn on and pull the output down to ground. And they can both be turned on. We get the same result. So what we have is a, in logical terms, is called a NOR gate. 
which is a which <laughs> nor stands for not or. So if either input is a one, the output is a zero. So we have the beginning of of logic. Now we know how how an inverter works. The inverter was just that the transistor and the resistor. So we could we could take one of those and and hook it to the output of this little NOR gate, and that would invert its output, turning it into an OR gate. So now if if either of the inputs is high, the output of the first part is low, and then that's inverted so that the output of the final thing is high. So if either input is high, the output of our little OR gate composed of this NOR followed by an inverter is high. We have an OR gate. Or conversely, we go back to this NOR gate where either input is high and the output is low. If we put inverters on the inputs, on each input, um, then look what we have. If we just, just uh, with, with, with the NOR itself, if either input is high, the output is low. Well, the other way of saying it is only if both inputs are low is the output high. So if we invert the inputs, then only if both inputs are high will the output be high, which is an AND gate. So we could have two inverters that feed into the NOR gate, and we end up with an AND gate. So it's, it's possible just with this, just you using simple components of transistors and resistors, and this is actually a family of logic called RTL. Uh, RTL stood for resistor transistor logic, and circuits that were, that were exactly like this were, were very popular, and this is the way digital logic was originally created. So, so it's clear that with, with, by, by assembling these little building blocks in, in different configurations, we're able to create sort of fundamental logical connections. Now, one of the, one of the core things that a computer has is registers. You know, it needs to have, it needs to somehow hold data that it's working on. We need to be able to, for example, load data from memory into something called a register, you know, or, 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 or an accumulator. Well, you know, what is that? How do we, how do we go from having and and or things that we, which we know now how to build? How do we, have memory. How do we store something? Well, there's a, an interesting trick, and I, it would be fun to know who actually was the first person to come up with this because it's, it's clever. Um, and that is, we've seen how we create an inverter where we just have a resistor coming down from, from the power supply to a transistor such that if we put a one in, we get a zero out. Well, if we connect another inverter to the output of the first one and then 
connect the output of that second inverter back into the first one. So we've essentially got, we have two inverters that are connected in a chain in, or in a ring. Look what happens. If, the, if we have a one input going into the first inverter, we know that it gives us a zero out. Well, that zero goes into the second inverter, giving us a one out, which we feed back into the first inverter. So it's stable. That is, it just sits there like that. And it'll sit there forever like that. But if, if something were to briefly, for example, pull the input of that first inverter, which is a one, pull it down to ground to zero, well, then its output would go to one. So the input to the second inverter, which would now be one, is it turns into a zero, which it feeds back into the beginning, and that will be stable. So whatever state these two inverters are in, they stay in. And that's the basis for another fundamental logical thing called a flip-flop. Because <laughs> it, it flips or flops in either direction, and it stays that way. Now, when I talked about, like, if something pulled that input down, that the way this is actually implemented is with something like a NOR gate. So if in a, this, this circuit gets a little bit more complicated, I'm, I'm about to sort of start waving my arms around and, and not go, going into the same level of detail as we pull back from this. But if, um, if we, instead of hooking these inverters to each other, we hooked our NOR gates to each other. Then imagine that both, so, so, so the circuit is, we have a NOR gate, we have two NOR gates. The output of the first one goes to one of the inputs of the second one. The output of that second NOR gate goes to one of the two inputs of the first one. So we still have the notion of these things being connected to each other in a ring. But now we have each of those NOR gates has the other input, which is not participating in this, in this circular interconnection. And that's actually where we're able to briefly change one, briefly like put a pulse on one to flip this flip-flop from one state to the other. And, and that's the basis for a, a register bit. Now, we want to do other things like, like add bits together, add numbers. Um, it turns out that addition of a, of a binary number is, is essentially synthesizable just from these fundamental logic blocks. If, and we've sort of talked about this uh, a few weeks ago where a, if you look at, at adding two bits together, they are, um, if both are zero, the result is zero. If either one is a one, then the result is one. If they're both one, then the result is zero with a carry. And so 
binary math works exactly the same as as the for example the decimal base 10 math that we're used to where for example you know if you had 5 you're adding 5 and 0 you'd get 5 if you add 5 and 5 you get 10 meaning that the units is 0 and we've carried a 1 into the into the tens position well binary works the same way where if we have two ones the result is 0 and we carry the one into the next position. So it's possible to express that um, that logic with just the gates that we've seen designed here. Um, there's, there's a, what I just described is known as in logical terms as a half adder because it's able to take two binary bits and produce a result with a carry. Now, the tricky part is the next bit over, the next highest bit, it needs to be able to add its two bits, but also accept the carry from the, 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 the position to the right, the, the one less significant bit. Um, that's a little more complex nest of logic, which is called a full adder because it's able to take two inputs and the possibility of the carry from the prior result and incorporate that into its output and also send a carry to the next one. So essentially, by, by stacking enough of these full adders together and interconnecting them so that the carry out of one goes into the carry in of the next and the carry out from that goes into the carry in of the next, you're able to, to take two binary numbers and, and after this thing settles down, there's, this is, there, there's like a ripple effect. If you imagine that you put the two numbers in, well, the, the result of the first two will produce a carry that goes into the second two and that may produce a carry that goes into the third two and so forth so this carry ripples down through these full adders to produce a result and then the final the final stage of of this full adder it produces a carry which in in computers is often called the overflow bit because the idea is if we were adding, you know, 16-bit numbers together, the, the result of adding 16-bit numbers could be a 17-bit result. That is a number that would not fit in, um, in 16 bits. That's exactly the same as in decimal. If, we, if we're adding like single decimal digits, well, we know that, that a single digit can hold up to nine. So we could be adding any two decimal digits that that sum up to nine, but if we try to add seven and seven, well, we know that that's 14. Well, that, that 14 won't fit in a single digit. It needs two. Similarly, it's possible to add two binary numbers where the result won't fit in the same size as the binary numbers. So you have that, fi- that that's what happens with that final carry bit that overflows outwards so so 
that's sort of the 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 fundamental architecture for for the the way bits are managed in a computer. Do you think if that we, the people figured that out um, a priori? I guess I guess you know Alan Turing did all this long before hardware was available to do it in his head, and maybe even going back to Ada Lovelace, right? I mean. Well, I of course, mean, we didn't have this binary thing until we knew it was going to be a switch. Right. Um, that's a very good point. And all of this can be expressed mathematically rather than electrically. It's kind of Boolean logic, right? I mean, exactly. Yeah. Boolean algebra, Boolean logic allows you to do all of this kind of stuff and work out these problems. And that's I well mean, known. I remember studying that in, uh, in college. Before there were personal computers, and you know it's fun. You do it all on paper, and you have and or, uh, not. Uh, I can't remember if you have things like NAND and NOR, but uh, you learn all those. And there's even symbols for all of that. So right. it makes sense that it, then then if you give somebody some hardware, you say, well, okay, you have a switch, and you have inversion inverters and all that stuff. Now, how do you duplicate those functions in this hardware? And that's really what you're talking about. Exactly, and. And at the time, now, if we if we think about those the, those the the cross connected inverters with some additional logic around them, one of the things you know, which basically forms a storage register, and then you want the ability to 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 load them with a a value uh, um, that that's coming in on a set of signal lines for however many bits. Well, that's going to take oh maybe um, call it 20 transistors and some resistors. So that's for like one bit of, of NOR gates cross-connected with some other gates to, to, to gate their inputs. So that's maybe 20 transistors. Well, back in 1960, a transistor cost a couple dollars. I mean, like one transistor was a couple dollars. And it was a little, sort of a little silver can, um, smaller than a dime, um, sort of like a pencil eraser. Think of it like, you know, the, the, the end of a, of a regular pencil eraser, sort of like that with, with three leads. So it's a couple dollars. We'll, we'll say that the resistors that are also going to be scattered all over the place are free. We'll just toss them in because they were always pretty inexpensive. But 20 transistors at $2 each is $40 for the logic to implement one bit of a register. So there's, and that's not, that, that's just like raw cost. That's not even burdened with, you know, all the other costs. Um, the, old, the other thing then you have is the need to interconnect all of these because you've got 20 of these little eraser head things with three wires and a bunch of resistors. Now they have to physically live somewhere on a circuit board and that's got to have interconnections which are you know traces on a circuit board but now you've got to interconnect them into a family of these so so you need connectors to to allow this little circuit board that represents remember just one bit of of storage forming one bit of a register it's got to be, you got to be able to plug that into some sort of a backplane where wires then go from one to the other to connect them into a multi-bit conglomeration. So maybe this is 
$50 um, by the time you're done um, for this one-bit register, and you want to do a, a, what, a 20, you want 20 bits of, of binary resolution. So now you've got $1,000 that you've spent for 20 binary bits of storage. That's all this is, is just, you know, it can, it can store a 20-bit value, but you haven't been able to do anything else with it yet, and you spent $1,000. So, and that's not profit. That's, I mean, that's, that's not thousand dollars of, of sale price. That's a thousand dollars of cost, um, including something for the interconnection. So, so from the beginning, the engineers who were trying to design a computer that could do something useful, they were designing them with these individual switches called transistors and resistors that sort of go along with them. Um, at a at a cost that meant that literally every single bit that they used was expensive and they were trying to bring the cost down as 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 quickly as they could as far as they could to make these computers much more accessible to people um what i want to do next week since we sort of understand this is is take a look then at at the next stage which is what do you do when you've got memory and you've got a register like this um how do you turn this thing into something that can get some work done and that's what we'll do in two weeks i love it i love it you know, it's so interesting to think what you said—a thousand bucks for twenty transistors, something oh, twenty like bits, <laughs> twenty bits, one twenty-bit <laughs> register. And now we've got somebody pointed out in the chat room. We've got you know Nvidia GT two hundred cards, which oh. cost about one hundred two hundred dollars for. Get ready, one point three. What is it? One point four billion transistors. Billion, <laughs> billion. <laughs> That's amazing, isn't it? But it was a, it was a huge insight to say we can do this. And then that that began with Moore's law behind it. That began the amazing revolution that we've seen today. I read a, a really interesting book last summer about the invention of the integrated circuit, and and the, and the breakthrough. It was actually there were some people in Texas at Texas Instruments and also at Fairchild in California, and there was some argument about who actually got it first. Right, but. But at it, it, it about the same time, there was parallel invention because what happened was there was everybody was running up against what they called the interconnection problem. It's like we're dreaming big. We, you know, we're ready to like do more. But what happened was just the, the physical need to interconnect the pieces you know that became the the limiting factor they they just the, the the you know the individual components were so big and that they physically took up so much room that you just you needed to lay out the space and there was before long it got too big to run wires all around it and so the interconnection problem was was what the integrated circuit solved when it was able to say, hey, you know, I mean, they even knew they could make resistors all out of silicon. 
They could make diodes. They could make transistors. The, 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 the fundamental pieces, they knew how to synthesize, but they didn't know how to, even with the, with the on, uh, on silicon, how to interconnect them. That breakthrough then, you know, opened the floodgates. It's amazing. Uh, Eden in our chat room sent me a link to uh, the uh, Wikipedia article on transistor count, which has a remarkable graph that shows how rock-solid Moore's Law is. It's a logarithmic chart that starts in 1971 with the 4004, which had 2,300 transistors. Essentially, transistors is a switch, right, Steve? Yes, and exactly as we just covered. It right. is just like it, it, so it replaces one, a switch. So it's 2,000 switches. And going up to 2008, where a 2 billion switch quad-core itanium. <laughs> and, and, but look how straight that line is. If you go to this curve... Uh, and because it's a logarithmic scale, that means doubling. Yep. Uh, incredible. I mean, you, you, it's it's such a it's one of the most remarkable predictions of all time because it's held true for almost forty years. And I mean, true. I mean, right on true. Yeah, almost self, maybe self. Uh, I don't know, self inflicting because. Uh, he, uh, in fact, Gordon Moore was the chairman of Intel. So maybe, maybe they, they said, well, we, we, we have to do this. I don't know. But uh, amazing. Just amazing. Really yeah. remarkable. What well, an age and, we live in. And it all starts where we just started. Well, and, and what is so remarkable, and, and we're, this is what we'll look at in two weeks, is I'm gonna sh- I, I, I hope to be able to demonstrate with such crude tools, with something so simple as a really basic computer, it is, it is possible to do an amazing amount. Again, as we said at the beginning, like a dumb box of rocks, but really fast rocks. <laughs> really fast rocks. Hey, we're going uh, to next week do uh, questions and answers, as we always do on the uh, Modulo 2 uh, shows. Uh, so send your comments, your thoughts, your suggestions, not just about this topic, but also anything having to do with security to Steve via his website, grc.com slash feedback. That's where yep. the form is, grc.com slash feedback. And we'll uh, pick 10 or so questions and uh, Steve will answer them next week. Uh, don't forget, you can go to grc.com for many other reasons. Of course, Spinrite, the world's best hard drive recovery and maintenance utility it's just a must-have if you've got a hard drive but also all the free stuff steve does and he's just so much great stuff uh, like shields up and you know perfect paper passwords uh his dns benchmark tool there's it's all there including show notes um for this show all of our 233 episodes uh transcriptions and uh, audio too in fact 16 kilobit version for the bandwidth impaired it's at grc.com so we will pick up where we left off in two weeks with wait. the uh, design of a computer. Great, great subject. We'll see you next week on Security Now. Security Now.